today we are starting our summer series on chapters 13 through 17 of the book of John. And we're actually going to start, though, with a parallel passage in Luke, which gives us some information that John didn't choose to include. Uh, John wrote his gospel after the other three. He was much older. He probably knew of much of the content that was in them, and he kind of filled in a lot of gaps. If you're able, would you please stand as I read from Luke chapter 22? A dispute also arose among them. This is on the last night. As to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. We'll get to John 13 in a bit, but I kind of want to set the stage for it. We just read in that passage that a dispute arose among them. These were disciples on the last night in the upper room where the, the last supper was Jesus. And the dispute is as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Okay, top quiz. Who is regarded as the greatest basketball player in the world? and this and that and the other thing. So those were some of the things I fantasized about. Now, what I want to ask you is, what were your dreams? What are your dreams now? Can you remember some of you? Was there ever a time, maybe when you were younger, that you really thought you had a shot at greatness? Maybe one of any number of things. It might might have been being an actor. It might have been being a singer. It might have been being an astronaut. It might have been being a scientist or a movie star. It might have been being the President of the United States. The Apostle Paul writes the following in Romans chapter 2. We'll put it on screen. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor. Remember that phrase, seek for glory and honor, and their mortality, he will give eternal life. You realize that Paul is saying here that we're supposed to seek for glory and honor or greatness. And I believe it's because it's part of the image of God inside of us. 
The problem is not that we want greatness. The problem is that we don't understand greatness. We want to get it in the wrong place. We want to go about it in the wrong ways. Because like the disciples on that last night, we misunderstand what true greatness is. The problem isn't greatness. The problem is us. Now, the Apostle John, at the very end of his gospel, we won't get there in this series, but he says, you know, there are a lot of other things that Jesus did, and it would fill all the books of his, in the world if you told, told everything. There's a lot of stuff that didn't, get, that didn't make it into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And most of the events that you find in the Gospels, they only happen once. They don't repeat them. But this deal about the Apostles arguing over who was the greatest, it is recorded three separate instances. One, when they're walking back to Galilee, to Capernaum, after you know, they had trouble casting a demon out of a, a young boy, and they're arguing on the way, who's the greatest. Another time in Matthew 20, the mother of James and John comes and says to Jesus, would you make me a promise that my sons can be the greatest in your kingdom, one on the right, one on the left? And the rest of the disciples, guess how they felt when they found out she'd done that? They weren't mad at her, they were mad at James and John because they knew that they'd put her up to it. Um, and then finally recorded in more than one gospel on the night that Jesus was betrayed and the next day died, they were arguing about who was the greatest. And we just read that in Luke. So since the gospels record this three separate instances, I think it probably means God wants us to pay attention and to understand what true greatness actually is. The last night, Jesus is about to die. They've been coming to Jerusalem the disciples are, are, are somewhat clueless, but Jesus is probably kind of sad. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. I mean, are you kidding me? Would you do that? I mean, these are adult men. And they're, oh, I'm better than you. Oh, no, I'm the greatest. You know? Well, cut them a little bit of slack. Because the reason we think that way is because Jesus changed the world. We think it's vain and proud to act like we are great, or to tell somebody that we are greater than they are. But in the ancient world, before Jesus changed it, that is the way great people acted. For example, there were a bunch of different kings named Herod in Israel. Now, do any of you know, when Jesus was born, the king who was named Herod, what was he called? Herod the Great. How do you get a name like that? You know? Herod the Great. He was the king, and he was the one that ordered soldiers to kill all of the male babies and up to two years old when Jesus was born, trying to get Jesus killed. Great, Herod the Great. Like kings of his day, he had thousands of people who served him, and he would order them around. He had them rebuild the temple, but he took all the credit. He had them build a city called Caesarea, the Roman style, with a hippodrome and, and a uh, arena and all these things, and he took all the credit. And he even had them move part of a mountain and build what's called the Herodian, about nine miles from Jerusalem, massive fort and palace and all these luxurious Roman baths. And he took all the credit. But he ruled by fear. He was jealous. He was a cruel despot. He was so paranoid that he just got a whiff of maybe possibly one of his wives and a couple of his sons were up to something, had him killed. When he knew that he was about to die, and since he'd been ruling by fear, he figured, you know, nobody really likes me. And so he imprisoned in the Hippodrome, like a great big, huge uh, basketball stadium, 
Um, he imprisoned all the most important men in all of Israel. And he left instructions that when he died, they were all to be killed so that there would be genuine mourning in Israel. Now, fortunately, they did not carry out his instructions once he was dead. But that's the kind of guy he was. He was horrible. Yet he was Herod the Great. He wasn't great by the way God sees things. See, in the ancient world, you were great if you built monuments. You were great if you had money and servants. You were great if you had a large territory. You were great if you went out and conquered other people's homelands. What happens when you conquer somebody else's country back then? You kill thousands of people. You rape. You pillage. You enslave thousands of people. Aristotle wrote that it was proper for the Greeks to enslave people. Alexander the Great, that's what he did. Julius Caesar, that's what he did. And so for millennia, everybody thought this is what it means to be greatness. This is true greatness. And Jesus comes along and he redefines greatness. Now, why does Jesus get to do that? Why is Jesus right and the entire ancient world for thousands of years wrong? Why? Why should we listen to Jesus? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, that mystery we call the Trinity. God created us. God knows what is right. It's not arbitrary. Whatever is aligned with the character of God, that's what good is. Whatever is not aligned, excuse me, I shouldn't talk and swallow at the same time. Um, Don't try that at home. Uh, Whatever is not aligned with God's character is evil. It's that simple. And one of the things that concerns me about us as a nation, and there's a point to this, I'll be brief, is that it seems like we've lost our moral compass. People no longer base what's right and wrong on an authority like the Bible. We, at this church, we think the Bible's reliable, so morality doesn't change, and, you know, we believe you have to actually have faith in Jesus in order to get right with God. Many of you probably read the story. A famous senator this week was giving a Christian who had been appointed to public office a really hard time because he believes like a classic Christian. You see, when it's just whatever your culture thinks is right or wrong, then that changes and there's no real authority. But Jesus had the right to redefine greatness. Every culture disagrees with something that God tells us is true in the Bible. So we should expect that. And, and when they attack us verbally or otherwise, we should graciously and lovingly respond and turn the other cheek. But the disciples, they've been walking with Jesus for three years and three different times that we know of when lots of things were not recorded in the Gospels. At least three times Jesus has said, no, true greatness is not being like Herod the Great. It's not lording it over people. It's serving people. And yet here they are on the last night before he dies. And they're back at it again. They still believe what their culture believed. Power, money, servants, conquering your enemies. That's what makes you great. What was one of their greatest desires? And we talked about this a few weeks ago in the first chapter of Acts as Jesus is about to leave them. And what do they ask? You're going to kill the Romans now? Will you now reestablish the kingdom, boot the Romans out? They're still thinking that that is what greatness is. So on his last night, 
Jesus tries again to show them what true greatness is. And now we're ready for John 13. Would you please open to John 13? It's on page 900 in the Pew Bible. Uh, there'll be a lot there, so you probably need to pass some Bibles around. Maybe if you don't, there are not very many in the front row. Um, some of you are familiar with John Stott. He passed away a few years ago. He was a very famous Bible scholar for many years, um, British guy. And he labeled these chapters we're going to look at this summer, John 13 through 17. He called it the heart of the Bible. And I'm not sure all of the reasons, but I think that one of the reasons was that different than any place else in the Bible, John 13 through 17 reveal Jesus. They show us Jesus. And by showing us Jesus, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, they show us God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we start this series, I ask you that you would actually show yourself to each person here. That you'd supernaturally help us, not just to understand what's written, but just to get a deeper sense of you, of how beautiful you are. I ask that you'd make each person feel your presence and help each person love you more than ever. In your name we ask this, amen. Okay, I'm going to start at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, what Jesus knew was going to happen? He knows he's going to die. And the Apostle John makes it very clear that he knows what's happening. Remember in another place Jesus said, I lay down my life, no one takes it from me. This is not Jesus the victim. This is Jesus the volunteer. His entire life, actually the entire history of Israel, the entire history of humanity is culminating in this moment when he is going to die to redeem his enemies. Very different than greatness of conquering your enemies. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Do you know what the nickname was for the Apostle John? His nickname was the Love Apostle. And the Apostle John was the youngest, so he might have been one of your guys' age when Jesus was walking around with Jesus. And so he was the youngest. So other people, most of the other apostles, or all of them, we think were martyred. They were killed for their faith, but not John. John lived to an old age, and he got very feeble. And so they would, you know, up on their shoulders, four guys would carry him on a litter, and they'd go around to the different churches, and John would just say, little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. And so he was known as the love apostle. And if you read First John, uh, one of his epistles, um, his letters, a lot of stuff in there about love and God being love. So John starts these five chapters saying that Jesus loved his disciples to the end. Even though he knows what's coming, even though it's going to be horrific, he loves them to the end. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, I know it's no longer popular in our culture. A lot of things that aren't popular, the Bible says, but the Bible is very clear. The devil is real. The devil, the devil tempts. The devil has power. Not as much power as God. If you are aligned with Jesus, you're not to fear the devil. You've got much more power on your side. But the devil is real and would love to bring you down. And what he thinks is that if he can just get them to kill Jesus, everything will go back to the way it was. So he's working to get Judas to betray Jesus so Jesus will be killed. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Okay, what does that mean, all things into his hands? It's up to Jesus. There's no plan B. 
Now, he's still going to have a huge struggle in a few hours in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's just going to say, Father, let this cup pass from me, and that's not going to happen. But you know one of the things that helps get him through it? He knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. Do you? Do you know where you came from and where you're going? Are you positive? Do you know where you came from, what you were like before Jesus got a hold of your life? I never forget that for, for myself. Do you know where you're going? In a couple of weeks, we'll get to John 14, where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Do you believe that? Are you certain that he has gone to prepare a place for you? And that that's where you're heading. That when difficult times happen, and they happen to everybody, maybe, you know, maybe it's a health issue, or maybe it's a relationship doesn't go the way you want, or maybe it's a career setback, or any one of umpteen different things, what comes to mind? Do you think, this is hard, but this is temporary. I know where I'm going. Do you remember what God's already done in your life? How certain are you? Are you sure that you actually have turned your life over to Jesus and are not just fooling yourself? You know, a really good book for that is John's first letter, 1 John. He gives about five or six different characteristics of people who are actually followers of Jesus. Because there will be many people who have fooled themselves, Jesus says. Are you sure? See, what God wants for you is not that you're going, well, I don't know if I'm really a follower of Jesus. I don't know if I really believe. He wants you to understand so that you can have really solid and certain joy and security that you know where you're going because that will help get you through anything. So it's important that you know. All of this is John's introduction to what Jesus is about to do. Remember the Luke passage that they argue about? Who's greatest? So now I want to go into what I think the situation at the Last Supper may very well have been. Something like the following. Now you know in the ancient world they did not have asphalt, right? They didn't pave their roads. Their roads sometimes were cobblestone, but much of the time they walked along on dusty roads. And they had open sandals, and so their feet got dirty. And when you went over to somebody's house for a special meal, then the lowest servant in the household would wash the feet of all the guests. Now, what's happening on this final night with Jesus? The disciples are in an upper room. It's, called, it's a borrowed room, and they themselves are fixing the meal. And what are they arguing about? Who's the greatest? So nobody's going to say, well, I'll be the lowest servant and wash everybody's feet. There's nobody to wash the feet. So they're going to go eat with, with dirty feet. Now, the original Greek does not say that they were sitting at tables like we do. It says they were reclining at tables. So I want to show you a picture, and I know you can't see it perfectly well, but I'll describe it to you. This is an olive wood carving, and all around the outside of a three-sided table are the disciples. And you can imagine, I'll, I'll act it out for you here a little bit. There's a, a rectangle table going to here, and then part of it here, and then part of it here. And it's open in the middle. I'm not going to fall. It's open in the middle so that people can come and serve drinks and food and so forth. 
while the people at the table, they're not seated like we are, but they are as they are reclining on their left elbow with their feet out this way. You remember in the Bible when um, a woman came and washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried him with her hair? You couldn't do that at my table at home. You can't crawl under the table and get everybody's feet. It's because the feet, there's ready access to them as a person is on their left elbow and their feet are sticking out like spokes away from the table with the three sides. Now, you remember the time that Jesus said, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't sit in a place of honor. If someone more distinguished than you comes, the host will have to humiliate you in front of everyone and ask you to move to a less honored spot. Instead, sit at the lowest spot so the host will say, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in front of everyone. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who who humbles himself will be exalted. We don't know for sure what happened, but it may have been very much like this. That they'd already talked at least two times, maybe more, about if you, true greatness is serving. So maybe Peter was fixing the veggies over here. And then time comes for everybody to get to the table, and he turns around, and just like guys, they'd taken all the places of honor and left him the place of least honor. See, when we look at this, um, we'll go to the next slide. And the second spot in, on this side, the second spot in, they would have insisted that Jesus would sit there. That's the place of greatest honor. And then John tells us later in this chapter that he was in the bosom of Jesus. So he would have been the first person. That's the place of third most honor. And then beyond that, we have um, Judas. It says later in this chapter that Jesus handed him a morsel of bread. Well, the only two people he can reach are John, who's in front of him, and whoever's behind him. So Judas was probably right next to him. And that was the place of second most honor. And then as you went around the table, it got to the person of the least honor, which might have been Peter over the far side. Because later on in chapter 13, it'll say that when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, Peter catches the eye of of John. And he's in the best position to be able to catch his eye. And he gets John to find out who it is. So many scholars, they feel like this was probably the setup. And it makes a lot of sense also because Jesus, when he gets to washing the feet, he'll come later to John. So, I mean, later to Peter. So Peter may have been fixing the veggies and serving because Jesus had taught them to serve. And then he turns around, they've taken all the right, the good spots. It may have also been that he'd been listening to Jesus about sit at the place of least honor so that you don't have to be told to move away. And maybe he's, he's back here saying, Jesus is going to notice that I'm at the place of least honor. And he's going to say, Peter, you're one of my top three disciples. You're the rock I'm going to build my church on. Don't sit. Judas, move over. Come over here and sit next to me, Peter. And it doesn't happen. And I imagine Peter is sitting there kind of brooding, kind of miffed. How does Jesus handle the elephant in the room? So Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and girded himself with a towel. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He came to Simon Peter 
And Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I'm doing you do not know now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, he who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is clean all over. And you are clean, but not every one of you, because he knew who was to betray him. And when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus didn't say, Peter, Come on up here. Judas, move over. He didn't say, hey, you guys see Peter was fixing the veggies. He gets it. He took a lower spot than Peter as the servant who washes the feet. Do you get just an inclination of how beautiful Jesus is? Of just this revolutionary way of looking at love and life and serving. I just hope that as we go through this this summer, you would just, your attraction for Jesus will grow. Millennia of thinking wrongly about true greatness. And Jesus comes and turns it on its head. And he says, if you know these things, blessed are you. If you do them, there's a blessing that comes from knowing, but there's a far greater blessing that comes from actually putting into practice what Jesus tells us. Now, who in the universe is the most blessed of all? Of all, of every, of, every, of all in existence, who's the most blessed? God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They, he, they exist together in this amazing fellowship of love and mutual admiration and fulfillment and joy. And that's what God wants for you. When he says, I want you to be blessed, he wants that joy, fulfillment, and love to be your experience. When he says, blessed are you if you do them, what he's saying is, I've got this for you. But it doesn't come from simply knowing something. See, we grow up imagining greatness, don't we? And some of the different types of success of the world, usually it requires some kind of skill or talent or aptitude. Often it requires being born in the right place at the right time in the right family in the right country to have certain opportunities. And greatness as the world sees it usually means you've got to have good health or lucky breaks or the support of the right people. And I want to be really clear. There's nothing wrong with working hard and becoming a great athlete or actor or public servant or scientist or singer or astronaut. Those are good achievements and you can become great as the world sees greatness and handle it humbly. But when we think about greatness, LeBron James, Adele, what percentage of the world makes that? Is it one in a hundred? Is it one in a thousand? Is it one in ten thousand? Where does that leave the rest of us? And when you go to the grocery store and you're walking by the, the uh, headlines on the tabloid, do they seem all that happy? 
Most of their lives are a mess. They're not experiencing joy and fulfillment and love. Something's wrong with this picture of greatness. This is not true greatness. See, Jesus wants you to experience joy and fulfillment and love. But he says the world has it all wrong. Being blessed doesn't depend on how talented you are, how smart or how beautiful or how fast or how strong or how tall or any of those things. It doesn't depend on lucky breaks. It depends on trusting him and obeying him, putting into practice what he's shown us. In this particular case, today specifically, although he had lived with the disciples for three years showing themselves, this particular part of the passage, he's showing them that they need to serve. They love people by serving. And they'll be blessed. Now, a lot of you in here do that. Many of you were helping with Vacation Bible School this last week, and I bet that, although you were tired, I bet that it felt fulfilling, and there was a lot of joy. Got to love little kids. It was, as Justin said, a party talking about Jesus all week long. Um, a lot of naps in the afternoon, I heard. Uh, many of you are great examples of serving. But it's also true that the, the, the rule of thumb for churches is that 20% of the people do 80% of the serving. Okay? So there are always people who have not yet put into practice what Jesus is saying. Now, for many of us, when we hear something like that, how do we respond in our gut? Hmm? You're trying to take something from me. You want my time. Our time is probably the most precious thing. But Jesus is saying you can't experience this blessedness, this joy and fulfillment and love without actually putting into practice the things that he showed us and taught us, like serving others. And you might say, well, doesn't it count? I serve my family and I work really hard for my, you know, no matter what people believe, almost everybody sacrifices for their kids. But the one of the distinguishing characteristics of people who are followers of Jesus is that we sacrifice to serve people who are not our family, who are each other, and we often irritate each other, and who are people that actually don't even like us and disagree with what we believe. Totally different than many other faiths. I was talking with a pastor yesterday who's been ministering for decades, and he was saying, you know, things have changed. Thirty years ago, he, he works a lot with discipling younger uh, men. And he said, you know, I could get together with them at night and we'd do this. They said, now, no, everybody's too busy. Isn't it, you know, we have all these time-saving devices, which basically have taken up all of our time. I mean, it was way back when, before all that, Thoreau said men have become tools of their tools. We have to make some choices. There's just no way around it. You will either have to figure out a way to carve out some time to serve people who are not your family so that you can be blessed or you'll miss that blessing. Jesus is not trying to take something from you. He's trying to give you joy and fulfillment and love. But we, we just, we call him Lord and then we often refuse to follow. You know, uh, there are a lot of baby steps you can take around here. You can volunteer once a month with the children's program. We really need that. We need help. But mostly this summer, this is what I'm asking you to, to pray and think about. To serve one, two, three people, to love one, two, three people by serving them, by listening to them, by sharing a meal with them. People who are not yet followers of Jesus. 
hopefully you've been praying and you're kind of getting an idea. Maybe God's nudging you about who that might be. I've never met anybody who did that, that that didn't increase their joy and fulfillment and love. See, part of why Jesus wants you to do this is because it's in putting into practice that we become more like Him. When we give ourselves away. Whenever I read John 13, I'm just struck by the beauty of Jesus. He's about to die this horrendous death, and yet he lays aside his garments and takes a position lower than Peter. It's a really powerful countercultural statement. Not just that he's a servant, but he's a picture of God. God loves to serve. Love serves. It's not about lording it over people. It's about serving people and loving them. It's the character of God. And it's amazingly beautiful. You know, God doesn't really need your help. He does want you to be blessed. Just as a final example, Agnes was born in Albania. She was short. Wasn't especially good looking, not necessarily talented or smart, but she had this sense that God wanted her to serve poor people. And so she did that for many years, and eventually she inspired people so much that she won the Nobel Peace Prize. And when she died some years ago, 4,000 people in 123 countries have been inspired by her to also serve the poor. She was born Agnes, Mother Teresa of Calcutta does not take talent. Jesus is not saying you've got to be one in 10,000 to experience greatness. you just got to trust Him and follow Him. And God will think you're great.